רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. Can you learn a whole computer science degree from one of the most prestigious universities ever, MIT, all by yourself during a single year? And the answer is, of course not. But my guest today can. And moreover, my guest today thinks that he can teach you how to do it. His name is Scott Young. Hi, and welcome to my channel. My name is Roy Yozevich. And in this channel, I host and speak with the most influential and interesting people from all around the world to discuss science, creativity, learning, psychology, and artificial intelligence. If this is your first time here, please consider subscribing and hit the bell button. And my guest today is the ultra learner, Scott M. Young. Well, Scott Young is the author of Ultra Learning, which is a great, great book. And all the big guys in the learning industry knows Scott and including Barbara Oakley and including James Clear and including all the big guys know and admire Scott's work. So Scott, many, many thanks for joining me today. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Well, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to follow that introduction, but I appreciate all the kind words you said about me. Oh, don't mention. Now I <laughs> mentioned you, I mentioned you in... Two of my books and the, and one book that I call the Enlightenment version 2.0 which basically encapsulate all the transformation that the educational system has, has been going through including the MOOC revelation etc the massive open online courses but just one chapter before the MOOC revelation the MOOC revolution I I spoke about YouTube and MIT open courseware and then I mentioned a young girl entrepreneur named Scott Young, who had a, 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 a unbelievable challenge to take all the courses MIT offered through, uh, uh, through its MIT open courseware and just learn them by himself. And all the courses, I mean all the courses, something like 30 courses doing, doing just a single year. Now, it sounds crazy. Why did you do it? Yeah, so uh, I, I went to school and I got a business degree. And when I was thinking about going to study business, <clears throat> I was also thinking that I might like to learn computer science. And when I graduated, I was a little bit like, ah, I wish I had studied computer science. I, I felt like, I don't know, I, I wasn't a fan of all the stuff that I, I learned in, in business school. And so I was thinking, you know what, I wish I knew how to program. I wish I, um, you know, program well. I knew how to do a little bit of programming. And uh, I was considering going back to school. I was actually looking into it, like what would it be like to register as a mature student and go back and do it? But I mean, that's not super appealing, especially if you already have one undergraduate degree, getting a second, um, you know, sometimes it just feels like you're dragging out the college experience. You know, you're not 18 anymore. You're, you know, you want to just kind of get on with your life. And I had encountered uh, one of these MIT open courseware classes. And I was like, well, this is brilliant. Like this is taught by, 
you know, the best person in the field, you know, like someone who's going to win like a fields medal, <laughs> you know, and they're teaching you algorithms and, and the uh, classes often had um, assignments. Uh, so problem sets with solutions, and they often had uh, final exams with solutions. And so this was just kind of a, a sort of an interesting thought experiment to me is like, well, there's a lot of classes on here. Has anyone ever tried to just take them, you know, and, and admittedly just passing a final exam is not, I don't want to make the claim that that's all of the college experience and you can reduce it down to that. Um, while you people, are speaking, uh, just a second, while you are speaking, yeah. I'm just going to show you sure. the MIT open courseware and all, there are a lot of courses over there. So please oh, keep, tons, yeah. yes, keep talking, please. So the, the, So I don't, I don't make the claim that, you know, obviously group presentations are important and, you know, essays and labs and getting to work with the big robot that has, like, there's lots of things in the MIT experience that I didn't get. Let me be clear about that. But I thought it was very interesting because if you were able to pass all the exams in a, in a program, uh, presumably you would have learned at least some of it. Uh, you know, I think, um, I think it'd be very hard to claim that you learned like nothing or nothing of uh, importance if you did that. And more importantly, you would have covered what was learned. So it kind of, you know, even if there was maybe some experience that was missing, you'd have this kind of breadth that where you're like, well, I know what's in that degree program. I know where I'd go next if I wanted to get better, this kind of thing. And so this really intrigued me. And I thought this was a fairly obvious thought. You know, MIT is a school that people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to attend. And it's super prestigious. And they're posting all their education for free. And I know a lot of people just want the credential, but presumably people want to be elite engineers and programmers as well. And so I was thinking, you know, someone must have done this before. And I looked around and It didn't look like anyone had done it before. And that really got me interested because how often in life do you encounter a situation where uh, like you are this the first. obvious thing, no one's done it, right? And so this, this got me really excited. And, and so the doing it in one year was admittedly now as a bit, I'm a bit older and a little bit more maybe mature. I, I do see it as being a little bit more gimmicky about the process. But, but the basic idea was, Well, if you're not attending the classes, if you're just watching the lecture videos and you can watch them at two times the speed and you can watch them at home in your pajamas when you wake up at seven in the morning and just get through the class. And if you can do an assignment and grade it immediately and learn from feedback right away, rather than waiting two weeks until someone sends it back to you, if you can do in a final exam, as soon as you're ready, rather than, you know, waiting until the exam date and showing up at that date and this kind of thing then, you know, maybe you could do it faster too. And so learning techniques and studying strategies had been a major part of my writing effort and my thinking when I was in university, it was a major part of my blog. And so this just seemed like a good kind of experiment. And uh, it was a lot of work. So I, I want to be clear because sometimes people will come up to me and be like, how do I do this in one year? But I can only put like one hour an evening. It was like, no, no, no. It was about like 50, 60 hours a week. So it was definitely intensive. But Uh, I loved it. It was, it was just a life-changing experience for me. I think that it really showed me that you have the ability to learn so much more than, um, than you think you do and, and that you have the ability to learn a lot of things uh, that you might think in your head naively, well, no, I'd have to, like, I'd have to be at MIT. Like I'd have to go somewhere to do it rather than something that I could take the initiative and do it myself. And so my basic feeling is that um The, the internet, the fact that we have so many courses available online has created an, an immense opportunity for people who are eager and, and willing to learn. 
Um, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to take up that opportunity. And that's sort of the subject of my, of my book and, and about how, you know, learning can be challenging. But at the same time, I think it prevents, presents this sort of profound opportunity so that if, if someone really wanted to study uh, a lot of different topics at depth, you could do it, you know, for relatively low cost and, um, and relatively low, you know, inconvenience, you could do it on your own timetable. And so this is something that I think was, was really powerful for me in shaping how I thought about learning, how I think about higher education. And I mean, I think some of the ideas I had about it when I did it about 10 years ago, I have shifted since then. So I'm, I'm always changing my thinking on learning a little bit, but I still stand by that as being a, a project that I'm proud of and, and something that was at the Basically very least a great experience. Okay, yeah. now it, it's been six or seven uh, minutes into the conversation, and <laughs> I think that this is a great uh, place to uh, introduce the elephant in the room. Now, mm. many, people, many people consider MIT OpenCourser to be a complete failure, and the, and the reason is that no, almost no one takes the courses, although they are great, And you yeah. can see, you know, the decrease, uh, the decrease between, you know, lecture number one and lecture number two, all the way to lecture number 17. So you start with lecture number one yeah. and it's like 20,000 people and lecture 17 <laughs> is 400. Yes. So, yeah. and, 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 and the elephant in the room says basically the following. So you managed to do it 32 or 30 cruises in 33. Yeah. Yeah. 33. And. It's a very hard word for Israeli to say 33. <laughs> 40 is much better. Now, okay. Now, because of two traits, two qualities that you have, yeah. one is uh, supreme intelligence or high intelligence, because I know I'm, I, I have a PhD in computer science. I know that if you don't have high intelligence and they know that the MIT tests are quite challenging. So if yeah. you actually pass or even succeed in those tests, it means something about you and you... are kind of men who are capable of understanding those abstract ideas. And the other thing is perseverance or grit, or as you call it in Israel, a big butt to sit on. Now, mm-hmm. if you don't have those two qualities, so basically, again, MIT OpenCourses is a complete yeah. failure. So my question is, what message can a normal, can the average Joe can extract from your endeavor? Right. So I think, I think both of those things you said are true. I think that the, uh, you know, I don't, I don't really have much thoughts about my own intelligence, but I definitely know that, um, you know, MIT is hard classes, right? And, and so I'm not making the claim that if, you know, oh, everyone who is, you know, takes longer to go through something like this isn't, you know, that, that's not my, that's not my point. I'm not, I'm not trying to um, discourage people or, or, or do this in a showy way. It was just, Uh, for me, um, just kind of a, an, an experiment in possibility. And so I think that's important to highlight because I think sometimes people can get a little too fixated on, well, you know, I want to be able to do exactly the same thing. And I don't think that that's necessarily realistic. My feeling is that, you know, when I, when I watch someone who is excelling at any domain, um, I don't necessarily think to myself, oh, well, I should be able to do exactly the same thing. But I do... appreciate that, well, if I understand how they're doing it and how they're approaching it, maybe I can emulate some of that. So 
this is something I think that's true in, in all learning domains. You know, if you see someone who's an elite athlete, elite musician, elite chess player, you know, I don't see a Magnus Carlsen game and be like, oh, well, therefore I can be the world grandmaster, you know, at 17 or something like that. But maybe I would learn something about how chess works from him. And so that's what I try to do in my book is not really make the argument that, well, everyone could do the MIT challenge the way that I did it, but that there are some principles there that probably apply. So one of the ones that's really interesting is that, uh, you know, this is 10 years ago, I was doing the watching the lectures at a faster speed. And many people wrote to me making the claim, well, you're not going to understand anything when, it, when you watch them at a faster speed. And I was like, well, that doesn't seem to be true. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of hard to deny that, uh, that sort of argument. Well, it looks like there was just recently, 10 years later, a study published showing that actually when you watch lectures at one and a half to two times speed, um, you mostly can comprehend it, that your ability to comprehend is much better than people's ability to speak. This doesn't mean that you necessarily understand everything in depth, but that was also true at that one time speed. And I, so this was, I, this I, I was something you, that I think was very interesting. Mm. I must tell you that I have a teaching assistant who takes two separate degrees sim simultaneously. So one yeah. in computer science and the other in psychology. Right. And he, he has a lot of courses each year and yeah. he puts the courses on a... Four times. Four times. Four Depends times on the speed. person. Four times yeah, so can four sometimes times be incomprehensible. Yeah. Yes. And he told me, I can, so he cannot listen to my lecture on four times. So my lecture <laughs> is only on three times. Okay. <laughs> now, the other thing you mentioned in your famous yep. TEDx talk, you've mentioned three conclusions from this experience. Now, uh, one conclusion is that an Ivy League education, and I think that these are your words, is like a Michelin restaurant. It's great, but first you don't pay just for the food, you pay for the for many mm -hmm. other things. Yeah. And the other, you don't go to a fancy restaurant every time that you that you are hungry. So you need to have the skill to learn by yourself because sometimes you just can't go back to the university. It's not possible, it's impossible. And the other thing, which I think is great, that many, many, Many people said, yes, but if I go to MIT, if I actually go, and it was pre the COVID pandemic thing with yeah. all the Zoom online teaching, if I go there, I can have this uh, human feedback. But mm -hmm. what you discovered is that if you have the solutions handy, this feedback is A, much faster, and B, much better in 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 the context of learning. So if you could please elaborate on the second point, because I think it's extremely important. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember the order of my points. The The second point was about the, every time you go to eat, you don't go to the Michelin star restaurant. No, 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 no. The, the, the second point. point, no. The second point was just that if you have the solution handy, so oh, okay, that you one, can right. actually make a progress. Yeah, so uh, this is a really interesting idea. So uh, first of all, I also want to say that it's clear that having a tutor or coach or someone to give you individual feedback is good. I'm not making the opposite claim. What I am claiming is that that's not actually present in most universities. That yes, you can go to office hours and get a little bit of help from a busy professor on one of your, there's no one sitting next to you and helping you on each of these problem sets. Maybe you can, you know, like twist the arm of one of your classmates to do it for you. But I know my university experience. I know the university experience of many people. And I'm like, well, you're mostly on your own. I mean, you get a little bit of help here and there, but that's about it. And so this myth that higher education is this just like 
intensive dialogue between students and professor is just BS. That's not actually how most universities are run. You're sitting in a class of 300 people, you, you take notes, and then you go do the assignments, you hand them in, you get feedback two weeks later, you do the exam and you get whatever grade you get is, is the, I would say the modal experience. Now you can seek out professors, you can do things. I don't want to say it's impossible, but I just want to say that this, this kind of critique of online, this critique of online education that like, oh, that there's some, some beauty of in-person learning where it has all this rich feedback and dialogue. I just like think Plato is nonsense. Like Aristotle walks down the aisle and speaks. It would be great if it were true, but it's not. And I think, you know, the, the sort of elephant in the room a little bit is why does in-person learning work better? Well, because you have to do it because people force you to do it because you're, if you don't do it, you won't get your degree and you won't be able to get your job and all this kind of stuff. So this, this holding MOOCs to this very differential standard where honestly the credentials are a lot weaker, um, I think is just a really unfair idea. If you remove the credentials from Harvard and still had the in-person classes, I don't think you'd see much difference. That's my personal opinion. So I don't think it has anything to do with the in-person learning environment. That's true at college. I think at the lower grades, the in-classroom environment's a lot more important because uh, younger kids have less self-regulation abilities. Uh, a lot of teachers will know that in you know elementary, primary school, a lot of it's classroom management, keeping kids on task, this kind of thing. But at the university level, the assumption at least is that kids do this and that they should be able to do it. And so there isn't as much support provided. You know, you're, you're not working on your assignments in the lecture class. You're working on them at home, which is what, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, so I think that's one thing to, to get straight is that it's not that feedback is bad. It's just that you don't actually get that much feedback in, in higher education. Um, and the other thing is that, and this is something that I've actually come to change my mind about uh, since I did the MIT challenge. And this, um, it's a bit of a subtle point because it doesn't really influence my practical advice, but it changes the mechanism considerably. So my thinking in the class is that I recognized from a very early stage that having problem sets with solutions was in some cases more important than having access, access to the lectures. That if I wanted to pass the actual exam, having problem sets with solutions was much more valuable than having the lecture, because the lecture you could often infer from the problem sets, it was very difficult to infer the solution procedure of problems just active from the lectures. Active recall, guys, active recall is much more important well, than rereading. Active recall, active recall. And this is basically <laughs> what Scott is saying right now. Test yourself. Test yourself. Well, Here's the, here's the interesting thing is that there's been a lot of research recently on um, a cognitive load theory on what's called the worked example literature. And so I was very much under the impression that, well, the ingredient here is what you're saying is this active recall. It's, it's the struggling through the problem set. And I still think that's important. I'm not saying that active, active learning, I think is still important, but it looks like the sort of secret sauce in that is much more having the solution and having what is called a worked example, which is not just, this is the answer, but this is how you got the answer. And what this kind of shows is that to be able to ask questions um, what we really need is answer to someone doing that kind of problem and seeing how they do it. And so there is a kind of um, allure in higher education a little bit of a little bit too much focus on here's a broad theory and here's some general principle. And then like now go out and apply it to a million different problems. And what I think that we are learning when we're doing things is a lot closer to, well, you have a library of kind of specific problems that you know how to solve. Now, 
again, the theory, the background knowledge is also very important, but I think that that's um, super important. And given this sort of emphasis on having the solution, this also casts the MIT challenge in a bit of a different light because I was sort of, okay, well, I do the problem and then I look at the solution and I would do this feedback loop. And I think that's very good. But if you look at the work example literature, you can see why the traditional college approach where you do the problem in a homework set, you do all of the problems, you hand it in, you wait till it's marked, you get your feedback like two weeks later, why that doesn't work as well. Well, it's not even that you've already forgotten, but it's the, if the ingredient for learning was seeing the solution, if that was the really pivotal ingredient and you're getting it long after it matters where you don't even really need to look at it because whatever that assignment's done, I'm not having to do that again. You can see how that's detrimental to learning. So I think that um, my sort of vision of what a better educational approach would be is you give, you have like, I think that the most important ingredient would be for uh, professors and for people to decide what are the kinds of problems that we want people to be able to solve after having taken this class. This is particularly true in math. I mean, some classes it's less problem oriented, but in like a computer science class, that's very, very clear what we want people to do. And to give people a lot of problems plus solutions. So just like if you had a huge library of these, you could learn much, much more efficiently because you'd be able to master all the different problem types through this sort of tight feedback loop. Whereas what we typically do is we give people sort of very vague general instructions, get them to struggle on a problem for a really long time. And, you know, the struggle can be beneficial, but then we delay the feedback for, you know, weeks sometimes. And uh, it's it's not surprising that uh, learning becomes a lot harder. So it's kind of interesting. I, I, I did the MIT challenge a lot on what I intuitively thought would be the right approach. And it's very interesting seeing now so much later, some of the psychological rationales uh, that I was not aware of for why certain methods might work better than other methods. And guys, if you want the research, uh, it will be available just under the, in the description of this video. Now I want to mention two things about what you just said. One, that basically what you said is that there, there is a big, uh, pivot dominant in a, a pivot factor in deliberate practice that you need a coach who can fix or change or say, listen, you did it, you did it correctly or you didn't do it correctly. And this basically this solution aspect of that, ah, okay, I didn't do it correctly. Okay. Yeah. So this is leads us to the to the theory of deliberate practice. And the other thing which is extremely important, and I always tell my students that there is a huge difference between going through the problems and with the problems with the, the solutions or try the best you can to tackle the problem by yourself. And then after the, you cannot do it anymore or you just, you think that you solve it, then just after watch and see the solution and compare with the yeah. solution. So this is this is a very interesting uh, debate that's currently being had in kind of educational circles, this sort of debate about um, how much time should you spend struggling on a problem uh, versus just being shown the, the way of solving it. And I, I tend to think that it's a, the debate's a little bit more pedantic than it ought to be because I think that there's a benefit of the sort of active process of learning. It seems to help with attention. It seems to help with you paying attention. If you didn't fail at the problem, it's hard to see what 
you would have tried, you know, uh, it's hard to see that. So I think that there is a benefit to that. Um, but I think that the key is that you have to view it as a loop. You have to view it as a um, sort of a practice. This is was the correct way to do it loop. And the tighter that loop can be, I think that generally you resolve all of these problems. So if you're, if you're really struggling with problem sets and you have lots of problem sets, then I would probably uh, go to the solution faster. Uh, but it is something that, you know, you, you definitely want to avoid going to the solution immediately throughout the entire learning process, because then you're not really going to uh, develop this sort of active retrieval. So the idea here is that if you make this the fundamental unit, sort of do some practice, see how it's done. Um, it's kind of amazing that this actually covers a substantial fraction of learning. Um, and I think this kind of goes against how maybe some people might think about it. Now, I think there's another separate issue of, uh, well, how relevant are the things that you're practicing in university to the things that you want to do in real life? But at the very least, I think that, um, you know, if you're going to learn a difficult mathematics class, this kind of um, practice loop is going to be uh, essential. And so this was a major factor. Now, I, I want to talk about something just very briefly because you mentioned it before about, um, you know, well, most people don't use open courseware. And I would say I think the major reason for it is that open courseware is not as user friendly as Coursera. Uh, there was a lot more stitching together. I had to do a lot more work to make the curriculum work. So I think part of that's on open courseware for being more difficult. And then second, I think the problem is that uh, most people are not ready for MIT classes. Like to, to do MIT's intro calculus class, you'd have to have probably done well in AP calculus in high school. And most people aren't at that level. So I really recommend Khan Academy because I think Khan Academy is brilliant for getting up to the MIT level. So if you look at an MIT class from OpenCourseWare and you're like, oh, wow, I don't understand any of this. Khan Academy is like your middle school, high school, uh, you know, and early even university. College, even college. Yeah. They, I think that they teach in Khan Academy differential mm -hmm. equations and they teach calculus, you know, yeah. not that in the high, in the high school level, but much, much deeper. And I, yeah. I, I totally agree with you that the courses on Coursera are much more digested or much, you know, let's do it the simple way. <laughs> well, they can be watered down, but yeah. It's not they can be watered down, but I think, I think Coursera courses can be watered down, but I think that the main thing they have going for them is that they're just like way user friendlier. Like if that's a, if that's a term like MIT courseware, like I'll tell you, like there was a lot of classes that were, all right, how am I going to do this one? Cause it's like, there's no lectures. There's a few problem sets. There's an assigned textbook and it's like, okay, no this solutions. is a real, and no solution well, for the yeah. test. <laughs> there's a real like stitching together here. And like, I, I remember going on, um, so MIT has their open courseware, which is for the public, but they also have this website for their students called Stellar. And I remember getting an MIT student to give me, um, like he would go onto the Stellar website and access the exams with solutions that were only available for MIT students. And he would like send me for a couple classes where it was like, okay, I can't do this if I don't have uh, have the exam. And so I think he sent me one or and maybe it was one for like chemistry or something. I don't know what it was, but there was a couple ones where I was doing this. So definitely, I think um, there's still a ways to go, I think, in making it uh, possible. But I think this was more an existence proof than a like, this is a fully versatile solution for everyone. It's just, this is possible to do rather than, you know, I'm going to advocate everyone do it exactly I, the way okay. I did. Now, I want to emphasize something that, that, that you, some, some, some of my audience may be uh, uh, 
maybe unaware, you didn't actually go to MIT to take the final exam. You just printed the final exam. You took yeah. the final exam in your pajamas. Yes, in in well, your sometimes I put on house, pants, Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then you checked the the test for yourself. You yeah. must be brutally honest about this, and you check. Yeah. And and if you passed, you passed. If you didn't, you. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is probably one of the areas which I would say is, um, I, I don't want to say contentious, but definitely an area where there's an element of judgment here. Now, fortunately, um, MIT solutions, you know, they're pretty cut and dry. So it's kind of either got or you didn't. The, the, the area where is uh, a little shakier is, okay, say there's a big multi-step problem where it's A, B, C, and D, and you, you, How know, do you, you put a minus point? sign, you put a minus sign where you weren't supposed to, what mark should you get? And so when I was doing the MIT challenge, uh, I, I, I used the rubric that I felt was applied to me when I was in university. And, and maybe that's not fair. I know some people would have preferred a much more rigorous, like any calculation errors, the whole problems were zero. Some people have said that to me. Now, I, I took it as, okay, well, this problem's worth five points. If I made an arithmetic error, then it's like minus two or something. And so I, I would, what I would do is I would do the exam under normal conditions. So if it was a three-hour exam, I did three hours, you know, no materials with me. And then I would grade it and I would decide on a rubric ahead of time. So like, you know, this is what I'm going to penalize myself if I made this kind of mistake. And so if I look at it, there were 33 classes and it was a several years later, I was thinking about this it was prior to publishing ultra learning. I was like, well, you know what, what if I did take the extremely like rigorous, if you make any mistake, it's, you know, there's no part marks kind of uh, approach. And when I went through it, there were six classes, six final exams that would have gone from a pass to a fail if I did that. So you can think about it that way, that the sort of 27 or 33. So I'm not trying to make the claim that I was perfect. I'm not trying to make the claim that I, I got 100% on all the tests. Uh, they were definitely hard. And so for a lot of them, you know, I was going for a, a pass fail benchmark. And so I think for me, if I have to reflect on it from this sort of distant vantage point, um, the major weakness I had doing the MIT challenge is that for the calculus and algebra heavy classes, my procedural fluency with doing the complex equations was not as good as it could have been. And so if I had gone a lot deeper into physics, that would have hurt me. So when I did the, I did this quantum mechanics project later. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I wanted me. to, I, I, I wanted yeah. to address the quantum mechanics, you know, start with me four hours quantum mechanics can with a bracket. <laughs> yes. So I wanted yeah. to address yeah. this, uh, uh, this yeah. endeavor afterwards. Now, uh, would you say that universities should let people like you take the final exam? Now, it, it, it's not it, it's not going to be like a a, a legal MIT a legal MIT yeah. degree because MIT degree, degree costs like yeah. ten one hundred thousand dollars. But but it, yeah. it might be an MIT X. Okay, and MIT X will uh, will let you just. Uh, sign up or, or, or just you know pay to do the final yeah. exam and then you have like a diploma you get you get an MATX diploma would you think that this uh, move will be beneficial to students or just beneficial to Scott Young um like doing it like sort of a degree by examination well I personally have always been of the opinion that um a lot of university has a lot of waste it has a lot of, you know, adhering to certain traditional standards that make it, you know, they have lofty 
pedagogical rationales for things, but I think if you just nakedly look at it, the higher education system creates, the waste that it creates is punitive for a lot of students, requiring all students, like here's, here's the best example. If you study in a foreign country, your engineering degree, and then you come to America or Canada, they often make you repeat large parts of the degree. And a lot of people who, you know, have kids and they have to pay job, do jobs and this kind of stuff, don't do it. And so what do they do? They get a job as a janitor, a taxi driver, doing something else. And they're just like, you know what? It's just too much work. And so I think this is enormous societal waste. And so I, I definitely am in favor of the idea that if you can pass the exams or whatever, whatever exams people dream up for that they think would measure that, you know, the competence, then you should be able to get at least something something that tells people, no, I know how to do this, or I have this knowledge that I'm expected to have. And so I, I tend to favor that approach. Now, the approach that I took, admittedly, is not, I don't think is going to pass that bar. Like, you know, marking an exam yourself, there's just too much room for sloppiness and, and cheating there. As I said, this was more an existence proof than a fully worked out solution. But I do like the idea of schools offering um, it doesn't have to be an MIT degree, but yeah, maybe an MIT X diploma or something. Now, the question is what the label, labor market will think of these uh, degrees. And that's another question. So, but I, oh, I leave that oh, up to and people. And this so. is, yes, I, I had this question. Yes, I had this question. What <laughs> with, how do you achieve an academic achievement? Yes, that will yeah. impress employers without academic degree. So one thing that I can think of is like the, Coursera certification, TensorFlow certification, AWS certification, etc. And yeah. Coursera gives a lot of those certification on LinkedIn. But what do you think? Should we think about this this, this whole thing, this whole certification thing differently? Because I want to learn and I want, you know, there is like the famous Elon Musk quote, I don't care where you go to school, which university you went to. Yeah. I just need results. I just need need to know what you are capable of doing. And yeah. is there a way that you think that we can go in this very positive direction that I can show you what my academic achievements are without having to go through the entire process of a degree and yeah, well, money is, and money. Mm -hmm. Well, this is something that I, I, I've thought a lot about and I think uh, it's, it's a complex issue because I think it's arguable at least that a lot of the academic skills that you learn in university that I think have, you know, learning how physics works or learning how biology works. These are all like important ennobling activities. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, you know, learning them is a waste of time. I love learning these things, but it's also pretty clear for me that they don't play a major role in your productivity on the job. And what plays a major role in your productivity on the job? It's being competent at work tasks. And there is some argument to be made for different layers of expertise so that, you know, to be able to perform more flexibly in more situations, you need to have a, a deeper foundation. You know, the argument that the person who can code up a website in HTML is different from the person who can write a machine learning algorithm that will solve some important problem. You know, the latter is going to require a lot of advanced math and theory that the, the former does not. But... I think it's also true that there's probably a lot of things that we teach in school that are academic skills that are merely academic. They do not actually translate to professional performance. And so why do universities put such a premium on um, 
on, on going to school? Well, I think it's because it's this package deal. You learn some useful skills, you learn a lot of useless skills, you learn some, uh, you're socialized into a kind of a more elite strata of society. You, uh, you demonstrate to people that you are willing to conform to an intellectually demanding task for a number of years. So there's all this sort of weird mix of grab bag of signals you're showing when you go to university. Now, I think the major problem right now is that if you have professional competence in a task, it's very difficult right now to signal that credibly that what can you do well you can say that you have x years of job experience i tell you what how do you I get the first what, job uh, just a second scott i tell you what what you can do in my opinion and again i myself also thought about it uh, in yeah. in depth but first there is a great quote from thomas soil he said that the best thing about harvard education that you never that you are never intimidated from anyone with harvard education so <laughs> so it's i think that it's yeah. reach the strata of society yes i'm that kind of person who goes to harvard now i in i know or and i think i know how to do it in computer science i don't know yeah. how to do it in physics i don't know how to do it in other disciplines as well but in computer science you have stack overflow and you have yeah. kaggle and you have all those all those things that if you have a high profile and github so if you have a high profile on stack overflow and github yeah. and 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 kaggle then you are that then you signal something very very important and it's like a giant flash in the night yes mm -hmm. i want kaggle competition number two or number one okay now all the employers know exactly who you are and what you are and what your worth is but they don't know how to extrapolate this and how to transfer this method to other disciplines as well yeah so i think computer science and programming and software engineering in general is a really peculiar field because it is a very high skilled profession where people earn lots of money, but it has somehow managed to avoid the inevitable trend of professionalization that turns every profession into a guild where there's all these gatekeepers that get to say who is in and who's out of the club and, and they get to make uh, you know, what amounts to, in some cases, almost like hazing rituals, just like they're not really related to making you more productive. They just want to discourage uh, new people entering. So I tend to be more of a fan of how can we make it so that we can demonstrate that we can do a skill and then sort of leave the evaluating of how we know someone can do a skill with the educating, just decouple that. Because I think the problem right now is that universities are in the um, educating business and they're in the credentialing business. And those two functions are so fused, it's very difficult to separate them. And I think that this is made worse by the fact that, um, you know, for most high skilled professions, it, it's all, it's very difficult to practice it without the appropriate degree. So you can't be a lawyer, you can't be a doctor, you can't be an engineer, you can't be, you know, I could just make a list of all the things that you can't do without it. You can't be a hairdresser in the United States if you don't have a license. So it's, you know, there's definitely, I don't want my surgeon to not have proper training. So I'm not making that claim that anyone should just be able to do it uh, if they, you know, can figure it out. But I think, I think it would be in the benefit of society if we could um, make efforts to decouple these functions to the evaluating that someone would be good at doing X or has the skills to do X 
with the training of X because the training there, it seems like there's lots of different ways you could approach it. And there seems like there is a lot of room for innovation. There's and a lot of room all, for different ways of teaching people things. And we are, and we are only speaking so far about the science, not about the humanities, because I don't know what those guys are, are doing there. <laughs> Now, Peter yeah. Tile, Peter Tile once said yeah. that technology is all about doing more with less and mm-hmm. education is all about doing less with more. And I think that this strike to the point because and he asked if Ivy League if Ivy League education, yeah. if Harvard is so great in producing best scholars, best and and, mm-hmm. and the smartest people, why don't you just make Harvard twice as big? And take much more students <laughs> and the reason that they don't want to yeah. so there is something profoundly strange about higher education now this is a yeah. big discussion and with your permission let me go uh, let me go over to another thing that you write about and talk about and uh, mm-hmm. which is motivation now when right. we say motivation okay I have like the Josh Kaufman the first 20 hours school that whenever we start uh, to learn a new skill, The learning curve is rapid, but after approximately yes, 20 hours, the learning rate decreases. So it's like a log function. Yeah. And so Josh Kaufman basically says the gist of what he says that focus on, on the first 20 hours, since motivation mainly comes from previous success. So if you have yeah. big success. Now I cannot harness the, I, I can't harness these methods to what you're doing. Because you invest much, much more than 20 hours in your MIT challenge and then in the uh, learn quantum mechanic challenge. Right. So how do you keep the motivation way beyond the first 20 hours? That's a good question. I think, uh, I think motivation is a, is a deep issue. So what you talked about is definitely true. Uh, we're motivated based on past successes. And so my advice to anyone who is approaching something in a domain where they have low confidence would be to start building early successes. Um, now, it's a little bit tricky because when, you know, it's what do you count as a success, right? But the idea here is that, uh, you know, you can accomplish more ambitious things when you're more confident um, because the confidence allows you to persist through a lot of failure and discouragement. Whereas when you don't feel like you're good at something, you kind of say to yourself, Oh, this is, this is impossible. I can't do it. Success so, brings success. Yeah. Basically. So I, I really like, there's this um, rule that uh, the educational psychologist, uh, Barak Rosenshine uh, had, and he did this um, review of effective teaching strategies. And what he found was that this is in classrooms, but I think it applies elsewhere. Uh, was that effective teachers kept success rate of their students around 80%. So when you, and I'm talking about like individual questions, individual things, you should be able to get them right about 80% of the time. And I thought that was very interesting because um, certainly in the new phase of a pursuit, you may not hit 80%, but it does show that um, at that level, you can kind of sustain motivation just by prior competence. Now, you can get into situations where the success rate is going to be lower than that, but I think it's one of those compensatory functions that, well, those are going to be frustrating situations for you. And so if you have no other route, then that's still the way that you have to go forward, but it 
it does mean that, well, yeah, of course, it's going to be more demanding on you. You're going to have to have more confidence. It's going to have to be a project that's more important to you. You're going to have to devote more resources, make it a priority in your life, et cetera, et cetera. But I think uh, the extent to which you can break down a learning goal into actions you can take with 80% success is, is a useful heuristic. I think you say that this is similar to the flow theory of Mihaly, Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah, Csikszentmihalyi is... Uh, it's basically the flow theory or no, because flow theory is something completely different because... I don't know. I don't know. For me, the flow theory was always about the lack of deliberateness. Um, I know that some people view flow in terms of a level of success, but I, uh, personally, I, I, I'm not Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, so I, I can't say what his theory meant exactly, but my understanding of it was that flow was a, I, I consider flow to be really closely related to fluent performance of a skill. And so one of the reasons I'm not always a fan of flow when it comes to learning is that the idea of flow is that you, you are sort of relying on kind of well-honed skills that you don't have to think about a lot to perform a task. So there's not that much troubleshooting, problem solving, it's very much kind of, ah, I do this, I do this. So you can think of it athletics or even a lot of intellectual activities where you've um, done it quite a bit. Now, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I think that, um, you know, definitely there's points in the learning process. Um, I know Anders Ericsson of Deliberate Practice was often a critic of uh, Csikszentmihalyi. And like in his view, a lot of what we're doing when we're learning is is sort of going against the flow impulse that we're sort of, okay, I have to deliberately fix this thing that I'm doing wrong. So, you know, you can definitely think of that in situations where, okay, if I'm speaking a language, for instance, uh, and I know that I'm sort of speaking ungrammatically in a certain way, I might decide, okay, this conversation, I'm going to fix all those grammatical mistakes. That's very much not flow, right? That's a very deliberate interrupting your own fluent performance kind of. Tell thing. me about this. <laughs> well, I think, I think there's, there's, there's trade-offs to it. So we can get into the whole deliberate practice and, you know, all of this kind of stuff uh, as well. But, but I think the 80% rule is a little bit more broad than what psychological state you're in when you're studying. It's just more of an idea that if you have things that are much more difficult than that, then it's, it's very easy for people to tune out and just decide this is too hard for me. I can't do it. I give up. But and why, I don't but think, mm -hmm. Just so, but how does this keep the 80% level of correctness coexist with uh, the, the learning curve? Because yeah. after, you, you know, when you learn quantum mechanics or when you learn like yeah. very hard abstract or <laughs> when you, yeah. you learn how to draw faces, which is great. Like you, yeah. you follow the route of Richard Feynman. And <laughs> when, you, when you try to do it, sometimes just... You, It's either that you can't achieve 80% because it's too difficult yeah. or you can achieve 20, 80%, but you're just going over and over and over the same thing over and over again. So yeah, there is a problem. Well, I mean, again, it's, it's a, th this is the challenge is that it's often difficult to uh, break down a learning task into that sort of increment. Now, I think, again, the, the idea that learning is um, steepest at the beginning is probably true. I don't think that, um, so the, the model he's talking about this learning curve um, uh, being an exponential or, well, it's probably a power function, but that's a whole separate discussion. But the, 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 the learning curve having that shape is true, but it's true mostly for learning a single thing. So, um, you know, if you consider a component process, 
uh, lots of things exhibit learning in that way where you, uh, you sort of quickly improve and then it gets so like, you know, memory of a fact or performing a particular um, like automated skill uh, will go that way. But the thing is, is complex learning is, is more difficult than that because you're always learning new things, right? So if you're learning a language, it's, I don't know whether it necessarily follows that curve because the issue is that every single word is kind of like that sort of curve, right? So it, it always has that, that issue. And so my, my feeling about it is that um, you know, you were talking about the quantum mechanics challenge. Well, there's new content throughout the entire course, right? So you could like a degree is going to be four years and you can have something that would take you 20 minutes to learn. And so I do think that the Josh Kaufman is correct that getting that foundation right, knowing how to start is very important. I think that that is very important for motivation because it's uh, it's those early moments that often that first 20 hours that determine whether you're going to stick with something. But I think it's also obviously true that many skills are going to take way more than 20 hours. I mean, I think the critic, the criticism of me that I, I, I agree with strongly is that, you know, I go to Spain and we're speaking, you know, okay Spanish after three months and people are like, oh, well, you, you can learn any language in three months. And then the people have spent, you know, 16 years doing it be like, oh, this is BS. And it's like, well, of course, they're totally different things. Like to be perfectly fluent at an educated level. Yeah, that is going to take decades. And so I think um, skills have their own sort of natural timeline. And so it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to assume that, oh, I can compress any skill, any particular level of performance into a given time frame, But I think the idea uh, of both Kaufman and myself, which I, I really stress is how you get started with something, how you get the ball rolling, how you get your kind of grasp in a field is super important because that's often the part that's trickiest. You know, the hardest part of programming is I've never written a program before to the point of, I can sort of autonomously write some of my own programs. Like that okay. transition is really hard, you know? And from then we are going, you, we move on to your next challenge, which was approximately <laughs> one year after the MIT challenge. And it was yep. one year, uh, uh, three months uh, in Spain, in Brazil. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in China and in uh, South, Korea. South Korea. Yeah. Not North Korea, because you are back here <laughs> with us. And the challenge was to three months, you and a friend, speak no word in English and just from the from the moment you land you just speak the local language so it was yeah. pretty so it, it was relatively easy or accessible in Spain and uh, and Brazil but much much harder in China and Korea now yeah. I have read Benny Lewis uh, I've read Benny Lewis fluent in three months yeah and which is a great book by the way yeah. can you hear me Yes, yes, I can. Of course. Can you hear no, me? No, because there is like a big rain. So anyway, I've read Benny Lewis fluent in three months. And one thing that he speaks in the book, he said, you need first to define what fluent is. And mm, many say, yeah. okay, fluent is not like being an, an Oxfordian English. And he yeah. said, I have a measurable metric. And this metric is B2, or, or it's a, I think it's A2, yeah. B1. It's a, it's a, so... If I have a measurable metric of what learning is, it is much, much easier to learn the language. What do you think? Um, yeah, so fluency, I, I never used the word fluent uh, in our project. And I did that on purpose because it means, it means nothing. Um, I would say 
technically fluency means that you're able to speak without major pauses. That would be, I would say, the strict definition of fluency. But it's very clear that you can speak without major pauses and not be particularly good in the language. So most people, when they think fluent, they think perfect. Or, you know, you are you speak it like a native. And those are just such vastly different goals in my mind that to use a single word to describe it is misleading. Because if you say, oh, I was fluent in Spanish after three months. Well, by the first standard, we were. I would say in most conversations, we were able to speak without noticeable pauses, with a reasonable correctness. However, however, there's tons of stuff in the language that we couldn't do. Like I was, uh, you know, I have a Don Quixote de la Mancha sitting on my bookshelf. I can't read it. I can't like it is a grind to get through one page of that book for me. But of course, a fluent Spanish speaker should be able to read that book. You know, so that's that's an example of something I can't do. I, we would struggle in group conversations, right? When you have a conversation with someone who is a non-native speaker, you adjust your level. You make it easier for them to understand you. This is something we do naturally when we're speaking. Um, but it also means that when two native speakers are talking, it's harder to follow the conversation. And so I don't want to make the claim that we had reached any level of perfection. I think anyone can watch the videos we were doing and see that we didn't reach that. But the point that I want to stress, and I think it's the more optimistic point, is that we were able to do a lot. And we were able to do a lot of things that I would say for most North Americans who have spent two, three years studying a language in school and would like to speak French or speak Spanish or something like this, they are imagining a level, I think, which is uh, probably inclusive of the level that we reached in most of the countries. I mean, Korean was probably our worst, um, but even that was a level where you know, you could carry on a, a conversation in Korean. I mean, not necessarily talking about like politics and stuff, but, you know, you could get by. And so I think that there's a lot to be said for the approach that we took. That we took. I think that there's a lot of things that people have maybe misconceptions about it. But I think that um, the the this is the approach that I would advocate for language learning across the board, which is one that focuses on getting you into a situation where you need to use it to communicate. And you, I mean, need to use it to communicate. You're not going to want to use it. And I think that's where I differ from some other people who are like, well, we should never put too much pressure on the students to produce language. No, no, no. Yeah, you learn a language you have through the story of it. being in China without anyone speaking English and you're just <laughs> looking for, for oh, the China person, for the... Uh, Airbnb yeah, yeah, yeah. version. So yes, it's like you must speak the language, otherwise you will sleep in the street. Now, this is this is something that I think is important to point out. I am not a fan of saying, well, you should attempt this immersion from zero. Attempting immersion from zero is the hardest possible point to do it. Um, clearly, if you'd spent three years studying it in school, that would be a relatively easy point to start immersion. And although easy might be relative, uh, relatively speaking there, I do think that people um, wait too long to start. So my kind of rule of thumb was that, well, for uh, a European language, you could probably get started after a month or two of Pimsleur. For an Asian language, I think that you definitely want to do conversation practice in the beginning, but for a like switch my entire life into the language, you know, China, I did about 100 hours and it was still a bit of a grind in the beginning and Korean, we did almost nothing. And I mean, we did make it work in Korea, but it was a lot of studying in our room alone, which like you, we didn't need to be in Korea for that. So I think there's definitely a, a balancing point, but I think people tend to put the balancing point way too far in the future. So they spend eight months with Duolingo and they haven't had attempted one conversation yet. Okay, okay. Like, Why now, is my now, Spanish now you not said, very good? You, you said in a recent interview 
And many people yeah. say, guys, Pimslu is great. But you said in your recent interview that you don't like Duolingo because you don't construct a sentence. And the single most important thing when, when, and yeah. when getting the skill of a new language is to get this very world that you are looking for and, and put it in, in the right context or in the right place in, in a sentence. So if you could right. elaborate on this. So why Duolingo is inefficient for language learning, in your opinion? My, my views on Duolingo have shifted. I think uh, I really didn't like it when I, I started language learning. I thought, well, this is, just, this is just a toy that you play. This has nothing to do with language learning. I think I, I kind of, it's not my style. I wouldn't use it to learn a language. I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a beginner resource. Um, but I think the main thing it has going for it is that it's super easy. And so that's why people like it, you know? So I don't want to, I think I'm shifting because I, I feel like I was too hard on it. Uh, and of it, like, well, there's zero benefit. I think there is second, some benefit. Scott, it's I think, not yeah. just, Scott, just, it's not just that it's super easy. I have gone through uh, uh, yeah. Pimslow and French and Duolingo on French and Pimslow, I just heard the MP3. So I didn't know how to write anything in French. So, uh, that's so true, yeah. Duolingo gave me this, how to write how to write or well how it's to also read. clear i don't think that i don't think the approach to learning a language would be to stick to duolingo so i think duolingo or sorry not duolingo pimsler uh pimsler also quickly reaches a level where it's kind of not helpful anymore but i think the thing that pimsler did really well which i liked is that because you have to retrieve sentences from like whole phrases from their English equivalent. And they kind of really guide you through the pronunciation. And if you're actually doing it properly, you should be pronouncing it. The one thing you can be guaranteed after you've done a Pimsleur course is you will be able to utter the phrases in the Pimsleur course and you'll know what they mean. And you'll usually be able to do them with, I would say, people I know who have done Pimsleur pronounce things relatively well because uh, you're you're doing a very quick, that it's that, it's that practice loop, right? It's the doing something, getting the feedback. It's it, that's what Pimsleur does. What does Pimsleur not do? Well, it doesn't do anything for writing or reading. Um, and so particularly if that was important to you, then that's it's, you're not going to get that from Pimsleur. Um, you don't have uh, Pimsleur often has quite formal language. So uh, not as big a problem with European languages, although like for French, you know, there's a little bit too much emphasis on voyant, that kind of thing. But like in Korean, it can be a real problem because in Korean, it's exclusively teaching you this extremely formal version, which is uh, in some ways quite different. So not even just the grammar, but like whole nouns are different in the formal yes, and formal and register. In France, they have enchanté de faire votre connaissance. What? <laughs> yeah. What? We don't speak like this. What yeah, is your favorite? Like you know? <laughs> enchanté the, de faire votre connaissance yeah. avec plaisir. Oui. But I think one thing that Pimsleur would do is that that enchanté de faire votre connaissance, that phrase would be fluent. You would be able to say it in a, in, a, in a thing. Duolingo, I don't think you would be fluent in anything after you did it. Now, what flu, what, but maybe that's not the purpose of Duolingo. I would think I was too critical on it initially because I thought, well, if you're not fluent, I'm like, what, what's the point? But I think um, it does give you sort of exposure to the language in an easier setting so that if you were later to become fluent, you probably would learn it a little bit faster. Now, I, I, how valuable that is, I don't know. I, I just, I don't think it's particularly worth it. For me, I think what I would focus on would be a lot of, like, I, I tend to focus on how can I get to a having a conversation stage very early and how can I uh, speak to people because I think that that's the goal most people want. Now, that being said, that's also not the whole deal of language learning. So a criticism of the Benny Lewis, Scott Young approach would be that 
A focus on conversation practice omits listening practice. And in the long term, listening and reading comprehension is the hard part of language learning. Oh, sorry. Even, just even, even when you try to listen, because in French, you know, yeah. the, 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 the guys in Paris speak. I know whenever I try to watch a, a French movie, Yeah. I cannot do it without the help of my wife. Now, if she like takes a sentence yeah. and just repeat it slowly, I can get yeah. it. But yeah. you know, during this slang thing, I, I, I just can't, I just can't yeah. get it. Yeah. So I, I do think that, uh, so this is sort of an idea that I, I talked about in ultra learning, this idea of directness and, uh, This is, turns out to be a much more complicated issue when I dig into the research on it. But the, the idea basically that if you want to get good at something, you need to match your practice to what you're trying to get good at. And so having conversations, you know, minus a rounding error is probably going to be the way to get better at having conversations. Now, there is some limits to that. You can get in a situation where you don't progress because you're too good at the conversations, which is sort of an opposite problem. So this is the deliberate practice kind of idea. But I think it's also very true that having conversations doesn't necessarily give you the abilities to watch movies and to listen to the radio and read novels and stuff. And so um, this idea that you do one activity for language learning and that will give you all the other activities has been a seductive one in second language acquisition. I know, um, you know, Stephen Krashen's whole input hypothesis, the idea that if, if people could listen, uh, listen uh, uh, had good fluent listening ability, they would get speaking for free. This was his, his big idea. And you look at bilingual education in Canada and it's not true. You can be a totally fluent listener of French through French immersion classes and have very non-fluent production abilities. So I kind transfer of think- Transfer learning is... doesn't work. Guys, transfer learning doesn't <laughs> work. If you want But... to be good at something, just practice on this specific thing. Well, I think it does mean that there's a complicated relationship. So, you know, I had a conversation with this guy. Um, I won't name him just in case he doesn't want me to share this, but he's a, he's a smart guy about learning uh, Mandarin. And he made the claim that, well, yeah, but if you want to get really good at Mandarin, Um, conversation practice is not like beyond a certain point is not what you want to do. You want to focus on listening. And I think he's right in a way in that there is a different problem that people like myself can get into where once you get to the intermediate level, you can have these nice fluent conversations with people. Then how do you get really, really good at it? Well, it means that you have to make kind of complex sentences that educated people use. And that is uh, not necessary for conversation. And so there is definitely, I think, an intermediate plateau. So my year without English project did not touch that. And I don't think we had anything useful to say about that intermediate plateau. But it does make me rethink the problem a little bit when, let's say, let's say someone who's by, by the nature of the email they sent me, their English is quite good. And they say to me, well, how do I become totally, totally fluent? I think there's a slightly different process there because I think the issue is that once you get to a competent level of the language, further progression can be uh, hard because you're so good at it, because you're already like, it's very difficult to find situations that force you to a level higher than what you already have. So I kind of started to notice that with my Spanish sort of near the end of the trip. And I've definitely started to notice with, with my Mandarin, uh, but that was after the trip, that was more uh, practicing it here. And so I think 
there is a sort of uh, an ongoing process of improvement. And so the things that you need to do to get to a basic level are not always exactly the same things you need to do to master something. Uh, but with that caveat in mind, when I think about our project and I think about how most people approach language learning and I think about the ubiquitous failure of language education in North America, I think, you know, yeah, find someone who speaks it, do the no English rule, could even be for half an hour at a time, use Google. Like the, the approach we took is what I would advocate. So I don't think for practical recommendations for beginners, I would, I would change my advice too much. So if you don't going uh, on a trip to a, to a, foreign, to a, to a yeah. foreign state, so basically Pimsleur and Aitoki. Aitokai, those- Aitoki, Aitokai, I'm not sure, yeah. Yes. Uh, those are good. Aitokai is good. Um, I, uh, So another example, like I did a little project uh, ooh, uh, like almost two years ago now, and it was with my wife. And so this was sort of beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Everyone's on lockdown and we're like, well, Macedonian, I wanted to learn Macedonian. Macedonian. Yeah. And, uh, and so we did basically the no English rule at home, but it was just with each other. So when I would have work calls or talk to anyone else or, you know, do anything then, well, obviously I'm using English. They don't know Macedonian. <laughs> and uh, it worked pretty well. People can look at the people can look at the thing that I did. Again, it's it's still just a beginner level. I would not say that i'm I'm totally fluent in Macedonian either. But where I felt that that helped me is now when I stay with my in-laws and they speak in Macedonian, I actually follow quite a bit of the conversation, whereas before it would always be like, well, I just got to tune out because they're they're now talking in their language. And so this is something that like I think there's a misnomer that the import the active ingredient in the year without English was travel. <laughs> It was, it was the not speaking English. So you just need to find someone who wants to do it with you. You don't have to travel. That's not the active ingredient. I mean, there's a lot of great things for travel. Travel is a lot of fun. I mean, that's, it's more fun to do it when you're traveling. But, but if you wanted to get good at it, that's the most important ingredient. And so even for people who like they don't have access to native speakers, if you can find someone else who wants to like practice English with you and you just say, okay, you know, for the next month, we're going to do this. We're going to meet three times a week and we're, we're going to do this. That can be great. I know um, in other countries, they'll have like English corners where it's like a, you know, a meetup where people go to and they just speak in English. This is, this is very good. I, I don't think it necessarily gets you to an elite level of like the perfect fluency. But I think if you feel like you don't have a lot of confidence speaking, you don't speak fluently, you don't speak smoothly, uh, this is the way to go. Okay. Now, uh, you spoke uh, in, in your book, I think, about, two, about three things, your fact, concept, and procedures. And right. one thing that you speak about procedures in the context of learning, of learning the language, is you, you need to do it correctly because you are going to repeat the sentence over and over again. Now, in my former life, I was a magician. Now, mm. we have the pandemic. I'm not longer a magician, but in magic is, or in, in sleight of hand magic, is, it's, yeah. it's extremely important, you know, to do the right thing to, to rehearse on the yeah. right movement because practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. Mm -hmm. So it's not yeah. that practice make perfect. And if you practice the, the wrong T, the wrong TH, the wrong R, the wrong yeah. L over and over and over again, so you will get the habit of saying those wrong. Could you elaborate on this? Because I think- it's Yeah, that's definitely true. So this is a classic learning trade-off. Uh, practice makes you fluent, but it can make you fluent at the wrong things. And so I have mixed feelings about this. So the, 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 the sort of one extreme would be you need to secure a perfect foundation first because we don't want to risk having to unlearn something later. 
Um, so in a, in a language learning situation, that means you want to, before you start having conversations, you should be able to pronounce things perfectly. I think that's a little unrealistic and unattainable. I think it puts too much of a barrier for most people in actually performing the skill. Uh, but that being said, the other approach, don't worry about it. You'll just get better through practice is also false. And so I think what I advocated, what I really focused on is perform to the best of your ability, but you need to be very sensitive to the idea that I'm probably not doing this very well and that I need to have corrections and improvements. So one, one issue from, from language acquisition is that uh, we have limited cognitive um, memory, working memory, the, our, our cognitive bandwidth is sort of limited. And so we devote it to different aspects of the speaking task. And overwhelmingly, when people are in speaking situations, they focus on meaning. And this can interfere with the process of focusing on pronunciation or focusing on grammar or focusing on that kind of stuff. So I think there's two ways you can cope with that. One way is to have a good tutor who you tell them, like, correct me. Uh, tutors aren't always very good at correcting you, but correct me. Uh, and uh, especially if, you know, after I've said something, you, know, you should have said it like this and, and this kind of thing, especially if they're, if you're soliciting it, I think it usually works fairly well. Although sometimes language teachers avoid giving feedback because they've been taught that that's too demotivating to the student. But I think that feedback's fine if you solicit it. You don't always want it when you're not soliciting it. So it's something to ask for. And, um, and again, think, feedback brings yeah. us back to the, uh, to the problem solution, problem solution. Yeah. So you have this instant feedback. Listen, you don't say it. My wife can, can not only speak English well, but yeah. also teach my kid how to pronounce the words better. And yeah. my 12-year-old girl speaks in a more American accent than me because she got all, all, all the, the corrections and I didn't get them. When I was at her age and now, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to change later. You know, so I'll give my, my big example of this was uh, learning Mandarin and Mandarin is uh, very difficult for Westerners to learn to pronounce correctly. Uh, it has tones. It has tones which are uh, very difficult to master. When you begin learning Mandarin, you often don't hear them. And it's very frustrating because I don't hear what you're like, you know, if, if they're really slow it down, you can go, you know, like me, how, like you can hear the knee and how like differently, but if people are just saying it at a normal speaking pace, it's just, it's invisible to you. Um, so that's one difficulty is hearing the tones. Um, the other difficulty is when you produce them, you often produce them wrong. And so um, there's a few strategies you can use for this. So one thing to do is I think if you can, if you're struggling with pronunciation, really imitating someone exactly like the way if you were doing an impression of them is very helpful because I think that this forces you to focus on the sort of sub morpheme aspects of the pronunciation. So right. yes, this definitely. is something that's, yes. this is something that's very useful is that uh, the teacher will say something and you try to say it exactly the way they said it. And now, this you, is you're never going to get perfect, so important. I think that's why Pimsler can be very good in the beginning. The other thing is, uh, and I found this necessary for Chinese. It's sometimes a little bit of a step beyond. It definitely interferes with fluency, but seeing how uh, someone actually creates the sounds with their mouth can be very useful. So for Chinese, one of the things that a lot of new learners struggle with is that there are two sh sounds and two ch sounds. Now in English, at least, there's only one. 
for each. And so you hear them as the same. And it's exacerbated by the fact that they have the, the two chas and shas have different endings. They never have the same ending after. And so that means you can kind of fake it. You can say them all the same way because the, you know, um, so for instance, there would be uh, uh, she and shi. So er and e are different sounds. So that's how you distinguish it. But also the shi and shi are different. The one of them has the tongue curled to your back, almost like you're making an R. And one of them has it touching the sort of bottom part of your teeth at the gum line. And knowing that you make your tongue in a different position, you can practice that. Now, it's very difficult to, um, you know, as adults, accent is one of the hardest things to learn because the natural facility we have at learning to pronounce an accent perfectly um, fades, uh, usually around 14, but it can go as long as 18 that you lose the ability to do this naturally. Now, you can do it, but then you're doing it the same way that adults you know, you know, if you're an actor and you have a dialect coach or something, that's what you're doing. You're, you're very deliberately moving your mouth in a certain position. So the challenge here is that there's lots of things going on in a language. There's grammar, there's pronunciation, there's vocabulary, there's usage, there's whether or not you're saying it in the idiomatic way or in a kind of like poor direct translation. There's a lot of factors. And so there is a balancing point between doing it correctly and performing it you know, to use it in the real situation. And so I you tend know, to be more of the use it because that's going to, what gives you the fluency and automaticity. But I think there, there is definitely a risk of going too far in that direction. And well, I don't care about grammar because I can just talk yeah. to people. Well, yeah, what you're not you going to be very intelligent sounding. Uh, what you said about that way. What you said about the imitation is so true because in Israel, yeah. we don't distinguish between double E and I. So to, right. an, to an Israeli ear, Uh, the word sheep and the word sheep sounds yeah. exactly the same. And now in Israeli, and when you say imitation, we yeah. in Israel, we, we genuinely don't understand why Americans say cheese when, when they need to smile yeah. because, we, because we can say cheese. Yeah. Yes. So, and when you try to imitate and when you yeah. see Trump, Donald Trump speaks with the entire face or, or Aileen from Seinfeld, yes, he yeah. took it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so this I think the concept of imitation is so true so it, it is yeah very, yes yeah and so I think this is this is a major factor and so as I said there is a trade-off um, if you know I think some people would take the idea well, well no, no no I want to learn it perfectly so I'm gonna just make sure that That I'm pronouncing every single word correctly from the beginning. I don't think that's realistic or ideal either. And so what I think is that there's two processes at play. There is a practice process, and you are going to try to get it as close as you reasonably can to the performance. If you are not close enough, you should do some kind of practice or drills. So if, you, if your grammar is not correct, then you probably need to do the textbook assignments that you were given in language classes. Um, if your pronunciation is not very accurate and you don't feel good about it, then you should probably do pronunciation drills and these kinds of things. Um, but I see it as being something that you're kind of always doing the skill and then also perfecting routine aspects of it. So I think that the best attitude to have is one where you're mindful of your performance. And so I think particularly with skills that involve uh, a kind of 
they're not just discrete chunks. They're not just like mathematics problems where like you either, you know, you know, you either did the algebra equation hundred percent right or hundred percent wrong. There's like no, no shades of gray, but if we're talking about, you know, painting a picture or, uh, Growing you know, face. speaking a language or, or anything that involves motor articulation, anything that involves perception, anything that involves uh, some kind of continually varying aspect, um, there's a tuning process. And so I think you do want to devote some of your attention to improving that. Um, and I, I do think it can create problems later if you're very fluent, uh, because essentially the problem is that you have to get a lot worse to get better. Okay. And so for you to improve your accent to totally native levels, you would have to speak for a while in a very disfluent way. And that's very hard for people to do. Um, so I think it, it can be a bit of a, of a difficulty. You know? I and think, even for me, I think that would be a difficulty. I but. think that the, the, the most important epiphany I had regarding my accent was the distinction between pronunciation and accent. And mm -hmm. I came to realize that in this life, yes, yeah. I won't have an American accent no matter what, but I yeah. can't improve my pronunciation. Okay, and by improving my pronunciation, make I mean make a easier job for Siri to understand me, make easier right. job for Google Translate. Okay, this is a whole new, a whole another different endeavor. I don't yeah. go for a Brooklyn or I, I don't know Manhattan <laughs> accent. I won't have it. Okay, but I can't improve my pronunciation, which is basic, which uh, 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 leads me back to another question that I wanted to, to ask you. There is a time for two more questions, Scott? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so now before the recording, you had a great, a great insight regarding how American uh, perceive people who speak English and how American mm. perceive people who speak foreign, not English language. Okay. Yeah. So if you could elaborate on this, because this just blew my mind. <laughs> well, this is, as I was saying, Americans, uh, because they generally learn other languages so poorly, and I don't want to generalize too much. There's lots of Americans who learn languages as well. So apologies for the Americans. I'm also <laughs> lumping in Anglo-Canadians, which I am one of. So this is not just to criticize. Um, because we don't generally, like most people don't learn uh, a, a second language um, that they didn't already, you know, speak at home or something uh, in in, in American and, and uh, Anglo-Canadian culture, uh, there is a simultaneous tendency to, uh, to be overly impressed by other English speakers who learn even a very bare minimum of another language and to be sufficiently under-impressed at all the people who learn English pretty damn well. And so this is my good example of this. I didn't use this here, but, but my example, and I was, I was talking about this example when I was in China to Chinese people, but I was using the example of, Jackie Chan of Jackie Chan and Jackie Chan is someone that, you know, people are a little bit PC now. So no one I think is really like trying to make fun of Jackie Chan these days, but I definitely remember in the nineties growing up that like Jackie Chan and how he spoke English, people would be kind of making fun of him because his English was not perfectly fluent. However, you watch an interview with Jackie Chan, he can handle an interview. He can go on a talk show and handle a talk show interview. You go to China and handle a talk show interview and you tell me how easy that task is. And so I, I kind of feel like um, the, we have this really weird sense that when we see Jackie Chan, we're like, oh yeah, his English is so bad. But if someone were at a much lower level of uh, Mandarin, we would be duly impressed. And so I think that um, this is a tendency uh, that people have. And so what learning languages has really taught me is to have um, 
have this profound sympathy, I think, for people who have to express themselves in a non-native language, especially if, you know, like you said, they they haven't had a lot of opportunity to speak it. And so they, you know, they don't live uh, in the country or, or this kind of thing. And so, you know, it's doubly hard for them. But the other thing I've noticed is that people um, use someone's fluency and articulateness as a proxy for their intelligence. And so uh, I have a little story about this that, so when I was in Spain, uh, I was dating this girl uh, and, and we were only speaking in Spanish and she was learning English. And so I was kind of like, you know, was, she's like showing me the English book she's doing this kind of thing. And she's feeling very self-conscious. So she'd never speak in English to me. And, um, and it was on, I think the last night and we were just about to leave Spain. And, and uh, she was like, you know, I've never heard you speaking in English before. Why don't you speak in English for a little bit? And I think for, you know, I think it was just for that evening or something, we spoke in English and she was just sort of like, oh my God, you sound so smart. Like your English is so good. And it's like, well, what did you think? Did you think that I was just like an idiot this whole time? <laughs> but I think it's just an automatic reflex that we associate someone who does not have a particularly high level of the language with being somewhat less intelligent. And I think it's this perception that makes language learning scary for a lot of people, that they are used to being seen as competent, articulate, and intelligent, and to suddenly seem uh, childlike and immature and stupid is very hard for people to sort of bring themselves down to that level. And so I think the way that we kind of got away with it doing the year without English is that we just had a very irreverent quality to it. We were just kind of like, yeah, we're going to look like idiots for a whole year. And it was just kind of fun for us. You know, we weren't taking it too seriously. And I think that that allowed us to spend more time practicing. But I can also understand why someone who maybe has spent six, seven years studying English in school, and then they have to go work in an environment where they need to use English regularly, and it's part of how they're perceived as professionals and stuff, this can be a very stressful experience. And so I don't really think there's a way around it. You just have to practice it and, and kind of get over that. But I think the more you can cut yourself some slack, and more you can cut yourself some slack and say, you know what, even though I'm not fluent, uh, even though I, you know, I'm not perfectly articulate, that doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, smart. That doesn't like, I'm just going to accept that. Yeah. People are going to form some misconceptions about me, but I'm just going to prove them wrong. I'm just going to have fun with it. And I think if you can have that kind of confidence and sort of a little bit of a lighthearted quality about it, language learning is a lot more fun. And I think ultimately you get better at it. If you, uh, if you don't take it, um, with the same sort of gravity that sometimes it, it, it can uh, present to you if you're in such a situation. And let me tell you from my perspective, first, it's great. It's, it's, it's a great idea. Now, let me tell you from my, my perspective, there is like a hierarchy of accent. You know, the British is yeah. better than the American. <laughs> yes. And, and we all know it. Yes. You the can Canadian say it's worse than the American. You can say yes. No, no, but yeah. yeah but, but, you know, the yeah. Canadian is not English, etc. But, but, you know, Israel is down there. The Israeli accent sounds not good. So it's not, it's, it's like you are, It's like you're not smart. And yeah. uh, it, it, it's, not like, it's not like the British accent. It's not like the German accent, okay? So it's mm -hmm. something different. And Israelis are, are considered extremely smart and intelligent, you know, all the high-tech mm -hmm. uh, startup nation. But our language, you know, the, it's, it sounds like we are much stupid. Uh, it, it sounds like we are dumber than we, what we actually is. And the other thing, that I came to know, I, I came to notice like three years ago in the trip to Vienna, that my English level was sufficient to conversations, to mm -hmm. making magic show, to give lectures, but it was insufficient to win debates. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that and can then be true, I know, yeah. 
Yes. And then I thought, wow, because I'm not that articulated in English as in Hebrew, because in Hebrew, I wrote four books and I, I can win almost any debate. And when I talked <laughs> with Michael Shermer, I'm a religious Orthodox Jew. And this mm-hmm. is like, like the publisher of Skeptic Magazine for the last 20 yeah. years. And yeah. we, start, we had this conversation. I didn't even know how the book of philosophies that we all know, yeah. what they're called in English. Right. So, I, I totally yeah. understand you. No, you know what? I'll just say one thing because I think this is a really deep point and I, I think it's important to, to leave it on there because this isn't just about language learning. I think all learning is about humbling yourself. It's about going back down and being bad at something. And this is true whether you're already proficient in a skill. We were talking about all uh, unlearning things and you know the fact that, okay, I have to like become disfluent. I have to become not as good at this. And so I think this is not an incidental property to being a good learner. I think that being a good learner is about handling the emotional aspect of, I am now bad at this again. And I think as adults, we develop these little spheres of competence where we are good and we are respected and we're smart and we're knowledgeable. And then as soon as we get outside of that little sphere of competence, we just feel terrified. We feel like vulnerable. We don't have that, that, um, that support anymore that builds up our identity. And I think this is a huge, huge barrier to learning. It's not a cognitive barrier. It's not because you couldn't learn a language. It's not because you couldn't learn computers or art or anything like that. It's because going back down and being bad at something again is a, is a hard and scary process. And so I think that if you can learn to just love it and learn to just accept that that's just what it is and, and you know, it's fine, I think that you'll be much better in the long run. Okay, and I hope that in the next con- our next con- conversation, my English will be even better. <laughs> Now, uh, another, yeah. uh, another, again, great endeavor that you had was to learn how to draw faces. Now, mm. in the first chapter of your book, it's called, no, it's not the first, it's chapter four, but it's called Principle Ones, Meta-Learning, First yeah. Drawing Map, and chapter five, Principle Two, Focus, sharpen your knife. Now, with yep. your permission, I want to ask you this very question because I wanted to draw to know how to draw faces. So yep. I started on YouTube. I start, I say face drawing and of course the magic world tutorial. Yes. Mm-hmm. So face drawing tutorial. Meta learning is basically know what you should need to learn in this particular field. So let's say that I want to learn how to draw faces. Yes, and I saw the faces that you drew, it just blew my mind. And I have the book and I have like many tutorials. How do I choose? How do I start? How do I start? Right. And what is the best way to start? Is there just a single way, single best way? Or, or, or just yeah. I need to find my own path? Or it doesn't matter because I don't know how to draw anything. Right. Okay. So this is a good question. Um, and it's interesting for me because I, I did it wrong in the, in, oh. the, in the portrait drawing challenge. So um, this is something I've changed my mind on. My original idea was that the important thing is getting lots of feedback. And that is important, but it is secondary to having a good method. And that the, it's kind of related to this, that if you have a different method, lots of practice uh, with feedback Uh, it, first of all, lots of practice with feedback will not, gen- not really reliably lead to a good method. And second, uh, the method really needs to come first because all the practice can be wasted if you end up needing to use a different method to apply it. And so for me, I made most of the improvements after taking the Vitruvian Studios uh, course. So I, I recommend checking out the Vitruvian Studio Portrait course. Um, Again, uh, what, Jamie, what, what? 
Vitruvian Studio. I mentioned it in the book, so uh, we could probably put a link up okay, okay. Uh, after. But uh, he is, without a doubt, one of the best portrait artists um, I know of. Like, if you look at his drawings, they're better than photographs. So, I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, you think mine is okay? Like, this, this guy's stuff is like, the actual photograph he's drawing from is worse than his drawing, which is, which is scary. Um, and, and I think... Uh, what I learned from him is a, a particular method that allows him to achieve phenomenal accuracy. Now, it's a painstaking method. It's not for quick sketches. So if you wanted to be a caricaturist, you, you'd need a different method. But uh, I think it is a really good uh, tool for drawing generally. And in particularly, it's useful for getting that high accuracy in faces. So this is the challenge. There's lots of different methods. You don't know which one works. You don't know what's going to be good or not. And so I think there is a little element of trial and error here. But I think if I were to redo the portrait drawing challenge, where I would start is what are the dominant methods that people use for face drawing? And there's several uh, different methods and some of them are kind of synthesis methods. So one of them is the grid method. The grid method also works for drawing other things, but it says you overlay a grid and then you match line segments within a grid. Um, that works. I don't like it for drawing. I don't think it's, uh, it's not really how real artists draw. It's a little bit of a hack. There's tracing. A lot of people think that tracing is how good artists draw really well, which is not true, but it is a kind of like, you know, flattering assumption. Like I remember talking to someone who was saying, oh yeah, all those Renaissance masters, they just used a complicated uh, lens system to trace. And they just don't actually believe that you could draw that accurately just by looking at something. Vermeer, um, Vermeer. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who did it that way and you can trace things, but I would say as well, uh, like this method that I learned uh, through Vitruvian Studios is better than tracing. Like uh, I would be able to draw it better. But how than did you get, now, uh, just a second. Now we have yeah. Scott Young tell me, listen, <laughs> I went through yeah. this road and this yeah. is better than this is better. But let's say that I don't have Scott Young. Right. Yeah. just beside me and i yeah. and, and i okay i i i'm willing to pay the money and we have like this udemy courses okay yeah and i i i'm not familiar with the veterian course and i don't know yeah. how much does it cost and i know and i don't know whether should i spend like i don't know 300 dollars for for mm -hmm. a course and i want listen can i just you know start with a youtube face drawing tutorial for beginners is this yeah. a good policy or we should start with the best, I don't, again, the best yeah. method is delivered by the best teacher, by the I best don't, teacher. Yeah, I don't think that there is a real way around it. I do, think, um, I do think that what you're doing is you want to do a search to see what's out there, but you can't do a complete search, right? And, and the problem too is that the method is often locked behind a course, or maybe it's not even online. It's like, you know, just some guy teaches it to his student through the art of, you know, and it's in Venice and whatever, and you have to go there. So, I mean, we're satisficing here. We're not always going to be able to pick the absolute optimal method. But I think this is the meta-learning idea is that you want to kind of cover the domain and figure out, well, well, how do people do this? What are the different ways people use to do it? And so I was just saying, there's grids, there's tracing. The method that the Vitruvian Studios is uh, works on triangulation is as a kind of a, a basis point. But there's also a lot of people who um, uh, there's sort of bottom up methods where it's very much about um, accessing sort of the perceptual details or sort of this line is roughly this angle. And so it's very much a feedback between seeing 
in action. And then there's what I'll call top-down methods, which are sort of like, well, I know the bone structure of a face. I know the approximate proportions of the face. So I'm going to draw approximately the right face. And then I'm just going to adjust based on what I think is distinctive about this person's face. That's actually how a lot of caricaturists and uh, portrait drawers do it. So my point here is the that- The guy like, who draw people on the subway. So they- Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's a re- you have to do it really fast. So how do you do it? You- you have a good mental representation of approximately how people's faces are. So you can draw a kind of generic face and then you adjust it to what the person's face looks like. It's not as accurate, but you can do it quickly. But so, again, yeah. But you, you didn't give me, you, you didn't give me the answer. Could yeah. you please elaborate on the searching process? What do I need to go? Do you, do you go to check it up online or you just, listen, I need to speak to, with a face drawing artist? Well, again, how this is what start? I think you do. You, 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 you Google how to, how to draw faces, and then you, you click on different people who teach how to draw faces, and then you just sort of, you can skim over and be like, well, how are they doing it? You know, you don't need to know the details of all the method, but just generally, what are the different kinds of methods? What are the different ways people approach this problem? How do people generally do it? Now, there is some difficulty here because part of the difficulty of teaching is that as you develop a skill, more and more aspects of the skill become unconscious and it's very difficult to display them. So, you know, you might know from having spent 20 years drawing that, The, uh, the lighting of a surface is related to the sort of angle that the normal vector makes with the surface and the, the light source. And this is just intuitive to you that, well, obviously the shading has to look like this for this curve to be represented, but you may not be presenting that information to students. So this is, this is a difficult process. But I think the idea here is that you want to do some kind of search. How long you want to search for depends on how long you intend to practice a skill. So this was this 10% rule that, you know, if you want to just spend an hour doing it, then yeah, just go with the first one you find and you'll probably do better than the not. But if you wanted to spend four years practicing this craft, then yeah, maybe you might spend a month looking at all the different ways that people tackle this problem and, and how they think about it. And so that's a bit of a trade-off point. I, I tend to focus on kind of getting into doing things a little bit earlier. My, my, my feeling as well is that for portrait drawing, for instance, portrait drawing is going to be easier if you have a base drawing simpler things, which don't require such high levels of accuracy. And so I think a book like Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain would have been really good because it teaches a, a method that's not too complicated, fairly easy to handle, and would be work for a lot of general situations. So similarly, if you're learning programming, the like your, your decision when you have zero programming ability is not like, how do I learn you know, Jupiter and you know, scikit learning for machine learning? It's like, how do I learn to program generally? And then it's like, do I want Python or do I want C++? Like that's, that's the element of your decision. Yes, and, and then we go up online to the, what's the best programming language to learn in 2022? Or what's, uh, what's the best programming <laughs> book? Or what's the best programming yeah. online course? Or what's the best, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it, it's, you, I, I, I keep asking you about yeah. like YouTube videos and you keep like diverting away. So <laughs> well, YouTube there... videos are great. Yeah. No, but, but you said, listen. Yeah. It seems that on the drawing, yeah. you don't start, okay, just watch the first 10 drawing videos if you know nothing about it and then go, you know, check some online course or because mm-hmm. the, 
you told me before, there is a, a, a huge difference if you are just going to, to take it as a hobby and if you're going to like invest four years in doing this. Uh, yeah. Well, I think, I, I don't know whether it's a huge difference, but I do think that, um, like, as I said, you, you get better at a method by practicing it. And so if you were like, if you knew you were going to be doing this at like, at a very serious level, then it just means that the relative value of finding a really good method early goes up. Right. Um, but this is the problem is that you don't, it's a, it's a search process. You don't know whether you're going to find a better method, right? It may just be that there's a simple method that people just have enormous quantities of practice and that's how they get good at it. Or it could be like a really complicated method where it's, um, well, yeah, but you're just integrating huge amounts of knowledge about how faces are structured. And so it's, you know, there's no, like, there's no trick to it. It's just, it's just like that. And so here's the thing. I think the idea is that the meta learning idea is that there is a, a map to a skill that you're learning. It's a map that involves procedures, things that you actually have to perform, ideas you have to understand, um, and then like little factual tidbits of knowledge that you need to know. Every skill is a little bit different. Um, and there's a sort of uh, a, a method there in the sense of like what, what it is that you need to do, what it is that you're doing to be good at this skill. And again, you need to do kind of a little bit of research. So, you know, the portrait drawing example, Again, there's no like library of different portrait drawing methods. You, you watch some videos, you look at some different people, kind of, uh, how are they doing this? What do they think is important? If you, if you really want to get serious, you know, write to one of these people, just tell them like, what do you think is important to learn to get good at portrait drawing? And I mean, sometimes they can't tell you, sometimes it's all tacit knowledge. They, they've forgotten exactly what they did to learn it. Um, but you, you can do this to sort of build your map. And I think with, with language learning, the same thing what's a good resource for language learning? You, you type in what's a good resource for language learning. You'll have tons of people comparing Pimsleur to Duolingo to Michelle Thomas to this, to this, this. You can go too far in this direction. What's the best ultimately Anki still... deck? Yeah, but I think it's, again, it's a trade-off process. I think you want to know roughly, okay, these are roughly the methods people use. This is roughly the things that you actually have to do to be good at this skill. This is, you know, you, you kind of have to break it down that way. That's the only way you can go forward. Now, I think um, there, there is this sort of uh, problem. And as I said, with the portrait drawing thing is that I thought that the process of drawing faces was mostly just a kind of, you just Beaver. get more accurate sort of perceptually over time. Um, and I no longer think that that's the method that people are using to do it. I think it's a combination of a really good, let's say bottom-up processing. So you're, you're being very, very accurate in this angle is not this angle, it's this angle, right? And you're, you're making those uh, very fine distinctions. And then it's also top down. So you have a very good knowledge of what are typical ratios of faces? What is the typical way this works? So people study anatomy, people study this, they, they have all this knowledge so that when they are drawing a face, you know, for instance, most people think the eyes are in the top two thirds of the face. They're halfway. That's just like a very basic thing, but there's millions of these little like perceptual facts that you can um, use in, in drawing. And, and realistically people use both. But the idea here is that, um, you know, just doing a lot of practice is not going to be ideal uh, for most skills. But if you can, uh, <laughs> yeah. This is can... uh, the picture on the left is day one. The picture on the right is day 30. Now, day, day yeah. 30 is mesmerizing, but <laughs> day one is not so bad at all. 
is not well, you so know bad what? at all. I didn't, in, I didn't include it. I didn't include it because it wasn't fair because it was a 30 day challenge. But the, the reason is that I'd first done this uh, drawing on the right side of the brain. And I can show you the, the before picture from that. So this is like, I did the drawing on the right side of the brain and I still felt like I wasn't that good at drawing faces. And that's why I did this challenge. But the, the previous picture, I don't know, maybe I can email it to you and you can include it somehow in the, in yes. the, the link no, there. No, because but this is great. And actually, maybe if you scroll down, maybe you can see it. I don't think I posted it there, but no, uh, the PDF. Uh, no, if you go up, I think it's on the PDF there. Um, Where's the PDF? Because I must uh, tell it's you. This, it's this uh, thing. Uh, you scroll down a little bit. There's this thing here. Yeah. I think uh, we did it because it was just such a large file. Um, okay. That first oh. one. Okay. You yeah, zoom in there. Okay. okay. So that right there is my actual like, but it wasn't part of the month. So I didn't feel it was fair to include it, but I'm just making the claim that it wasn't natural talent. That was my first picture. This was before this. This was before drawing on so, the right side of the brain. Um, uh, I don't know whether this is before. Maybe it was after. No, I think it maybe it was before drawing on the right side of the brain. Yeah. So this was like my first attempt at drawing my face, and I've also spent a lot of time drawing too. So I, it's not that I have zero artistic aptitude or a background experience either. You know, I'm not. This was, but that was where I started, and this is this is all the little. Yeah, sketches and stuff that I did. But my point is just that um, I did the drawing on the right side of the brain course, and that got me to the the first picture you see on that thirty but, day challenge. But drawing on the right side of the brain, it, of the right side of your of your brain, it's it's a book. It's it's also yeah. a course. Uh, I don't know whether it's a course. It's definitely a book. Yes, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll give away the secret. Drawing on the right side of the brain is a, a bottom-up drawing process. The idea is that the reason we have difficulty drawing is that we, um, we typically perceive objects as three-dimensional entities. So when you see a like this phone, you think rectangle, right? But if, you're, if it's here, it's actually like a weird quadrilateral, like in a 2D projection. And so the trick is that you have to train yourself to see the angles that are there in the 2D projection that aren't there in real life. And so there's lots of little like kind of ways you can do that. I don't really like the right brain, left brain thing. I think that's BS, yes. but, but the book is good. And so uh, if you want to start with that, that would be a good starter resource to get you good at drawing things generally. Um, and, and that's what got me to the first picture uh, that you can see in that. And then the 30 day trial that definitely Vitruvian studios would be the course I'd recommend for that. But I think, yeah, again, it's, it's a challenge because how do you know what method to use? And that was an issue I had in the beginning that like, I would look at how to draw faces and people are suggesting the grid method, or they're suggesting like really basic, you know, put the eyes in the middle and do this, which is like, yeah, it's okay, but you're not going to get a likeness. You're just going to get a face that looks human. <laughs> so I think this can be a challenge. And I think there's a dialogue between doing the skill and like finding better methods um, that, that takes place in any self-education uh, endeavor. What are you doing these days? Because your YouTube channel, I think your last upload was 11 months ago. So what are you doing these days? Yeah. Yeah, I don't upload much to YouTube, unfortunately. Uh, it was just between writing articles, I just don't have enough time to make YouTube content. So I only usually do YouTube when there's something specific that needs to be video. So I think like my language learning experiment was one of those ones that was like, well, this is on YouTube, obviously. Um, but I uh, these days I've been doing a lot of research on the learning transfer problem. And so this has been kind of occupying my life for the last like, year of getting really deep into this. And sort of, it, it's one of those issues that it seems like it should just be a kind of esoteric kind of like, oh, this is something academics worry about, but it actually goes, no, it's one of those questions profound. that goes to the heart of learning. 
that transfer is essentially an answer to the question of what it is that happens when we learn. And uh, so let me just it turns elaborate. out to be a much bigger question. Than let me just explain. The idea is, am I is it possible that I learned something and this something that I learned, this new skill, shed yeah. light on different domains in my life? And can I transfer okay, yeah. this knowledge to other domains? Because every, a, a, a normal IQ, an average IQ yeah. person can learn something and be very, extremely good. You know, elite chess player has a, an average IQ, but they can't take this one domain, which they are extremely good at, and transfer this knowledge to other domains as well. And this is like the, the a very- well, it's, a huge, it's a huge issue. And it, 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 like it really, it cuts to the heart of what learning is, what schools are for, what we should be doing. What, what do we even learn from experiences? Like, what, how are you a better person than you were yesterday? It, 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 it's all based on this. And, and so it's all in I don't know whether I've come to any really strong conclusions yet because there's lots of different viewpoints and a lot of these issues are still unresolved. But um, I think the picture that is held by cognitive psychology is not the picture that ordinary people hold about how skills are working acquired. So this is very Definitely. interesting to me because- And we are transferring in uh, artificial intelligence, which is yeah. quite different. And even, even people in the industry, in the field say, you know, even the transfer learning in artificial intelligence, it's not that transfer. You know, it's from one domain, to a similar domain, not to a whole new different domain. Now, Scott Young, yeah. it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. It's been like a roller coaster of ideas. Thank you <laughs> so much. I usually end the conversation with one question about give me one tip to be more productive. But I have a theory that all these productive guru guys like Ali Abdal and Thomas Frank and, and, and all these yeah. other guys, they don't have kids. They don't have kids. <laughs> and, and it's much easier. No, I think it's- Well, I didn't have kids and now I do. So I, I, yes. I'm laughing, so I'm as, laughing yes, out of- uh, Josh, out of Yes, you, so, so you yeah. know what I mean. Josh Kaufman, when he had this, his girl, he said, okay, now I actually cannot learn anything. So what's your yeah. best productivity tip for guys who have kids? Yeah, well, I do think that the challenges that I did when I was uh, single and childless would not, I would not be able to do them the same way now. But I think at the same time, I feel like this is not going to be a productivity tip. So I, unfortunately, I don't have the solution for anyone. But I think the right way to view it is that each phase of your life has uh, opportunities and constraints. And the key to living well, in my belief, is to is to make the most of the opportunities and constraints. And so it is undoubtedly true that I cannot, I cannot do the marathon projects that I used to do. I can't, I can't go and move to a different country and immerse myself in a language. And, you know, that makes things um, more difficult in some ways, but there's also these just amazing opportunities. I get to watch my son grow up and learn and, and, you know, I get to try to, in some ways, help him become a better person. And so I think the key to life is not to just is not, it's not just an optimization problem of like, there's one good thing that you're trying to maximize uh, across all places in space. It's very much a local, you know, you're in this particular situation, what should you do to make the best of it? And so I think, 
I think that there is a room for more humble projects and for more specific and more concrete projects. And I think there's a room for, you know, doing things that allow you to participate in your work and family. So I feel like one of the things that I've shifted more towards is learning projects that integrate with my work more, that they're not just totally isolated. I'm going to learn this thing that has no connection to my work. Um, I know I was talking with Cal Newport and he has three kids and he's super busy. And he was talking about, oh yeah, I was doing this sort of like a little electrical engineering. I think it was an electrical engineering project, but it was like with his kids, like he was doing it with them. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities in Parented too. And, and you know, I love being a father and I think I wouldn't trade it for the world. And so I think there is sometimes this idea that all advice is universal and everyone can do that thing at the same time. But there's also the opposite problem where people are like, well, that's not my situation. So I like, I hate this person who's saying this advice. You know, when I was uh, single, I didn't have kids, the productivity advice of, you know, that I was following was different and that's just okay. It's okay for it to be like that. And so I think that uh, when you're approaching problems in your life, you have to think about what are my constraints, but also what are my opportunities? What are the, what are the things that are not just about getting more done in the day, but about having richer, more meaningful experiences. And I think if you have kids, there's plenty of those, you know, even if, even if you don't have 40 hours a week to throw on a new project. So much wisdom in just one hour and 45 minutes. Scott <laughs> Young, thank you so much. Guys, get his book. It's a, oh, an you. incredible book. It's really an incredible book. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. אוקיי, ביי ביי. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה. Thank you.